Father Anastasios, much loved, well known, um, 
glad to have you back at uh, this year for this series of talks. Uh, for those of you who don't know Father Anastasio, he's the parish priest at the Church of St. Nectarios in Wollongong. He's also a lecturer in church history at St. Andrew's Greek Orthodox Theological College. And today his talk is titled Oliver and Communion with a little bit of a twist, an 18th century crisis on Mount Athos. So that little twist uh, sound, makes the talk sound quite enticing and interesting. So let's see um, what Father Anastasios has to share with us today. Welcome, Father. Thank you very much, Eleni. I have Lugita Pateris. It's wonderful to be uh, with you again. Uh, yes, I um, because I have to give a report of the talks that I that I offer to the uh, the Sydney College of Divinity as part of my professional um, uh, sort of interaction with the wider community. I try to think of you know titles that um, you know will uh, be considered to be uh, somewhat you know historically based and a little controversial, uh, just to uh, to spice it up a bit. But really tonight. What we are talking about is the Kolibada's fathers. Uh, and if I can ask Yango, if I have the ability to, can I share my screen, Yango, at this point? You'll be able to, Paterne. All right, thank you. Kolibada and communion, an 18th century crisis on Mount Athos. The 18th century, the 1700s, was an extraordinary period in European uh, history. Uh, uh, politically, uh, intellectually, uh, it was the age of what we know of as the Enlightenment, a time when uh, an emphasis was placed on reason, uh, what was known as rationalism, on philosophy uh, that was beginning now to be disconnected with any idea of a God who loves cares for, and uh, works with humanity in the world. So while most people weren't atheists, though they were that as well, uh, it was now a time when man felt that he could do it on his own. Uh, going on from uh, Descartes' assertion of, I think, therefore I am, the 18th century uh, created a whole philosophical system uh, that placed man at the center of the ability, man at the center of knowledge and, uh, and in acquiring knowledge through his senses, through connecting with the world around him and through his own intellect. We're not going to go into the enlightenment tonight, but just to know that it was a great intellectual force uh, that had its effect even on the Orthodox Church, which was then under the control, the Greek Orthodox Church, under the control of the Turkish Ottoman Empire. The Enlightenment wasn't all bad. It had many good aspects to it as well. Uh, ideas of equality, ideas of uh, raising the standards of, of uh, education for human beings, uh, for the oppressed, of getting people to participate uh, in their own society uh, were positive things, but sometimes they came at the expense of the traditions uh, and the outlook uh, that allowed for man to have communion with God. It was within this 
within this environment that a controversy arose on Mount Athos in the latter part of the 18th century, the latter part of the 1700s. It was the greatest controversy, spiritual controversy, to engulf this holy mountain since the time of the Hesychasts in the 14th century, uh, when St. Gregory Palamas uh, had to assert before the, again, the scholastic Western mind that it was possible to have real communion with God in this life. It was possible to be saved in this life, to come and know God experientially uh, and not just intellectually. Uh, at that time, uh, the holy mountain was engulfed uh, in the controversy surrounding the Jesus prayer, surrounding the vision of the uncreated light, uh, and many other hesychastic practices, monastic practices, uh, that had been part and parcel of the Orthodox tradition from the beginning, but which were becoming very, very strange to the Western mind and to Western Christians. In some respects, what happens in the 18th century on Mount Athos is a continuation of this hesychastic controversy. But let's see, and like the hesychastic controversy, it is ignited by the most well, apparently at least, insignificant of events. The hesychastic controversy in the 14th century was brought about when a Western Christian scholar named Barlam became offended when he saw the monks practicing the Jesus prayer. He called them navel gazers because they used to stare at their navel as they were praying. Uh, and this became a pejorative term uh, to try and demean them. But it was, as some of you would know, much more than just about how you pray. Uh, there was a lot of other things involved in it, and it will be the same in this case. In the middle of the 18th century, on Mount Athos at the steep of St. Anna, the monks there, the leadership at least, of the, uh, of, of the skeet, uh, had undertaken a, a building program, uh, rebuilding the church and surrounding, surrounding buildings. Uh, for that, they needed money uh, and they had acquired donations uh, from around the Greek world at the time. Now, much as we do today, when you give a donation to a monastery, quite often you send a list of names of people living and dead whom you want the monks to commemorate at their liturgies, a very pious custom. Up until that time, it had been the tradition that the names of the dead and Goliva offered, the memorial service that is, the boiled wheat that we offer at the end of the liturgy, when we're commemorating someone that has passed away, that that was done on a Saturday, because Saturday, Sabato, is the day of rest, the day when God rested, the day when we commemorate those who have reposed in the Lord. Sunday being part the day of the resurrection par excellence, the, the first day of the new creation, 
was considered to be too joyful an occasion to remember death in this world and to commemorate the dead. But the monks were very busy and they wanted to rationalize their services a little bit. So they decided that they would transfer all the commemorations of the dead and the koliva on to the Sunday to give themselves the opportunity to continue working on the Saturday and to also be able to you know, go to the marketplace, go to Garies and do, do the practical things that, can, that needed to be done for the monastery. This change ignited a fierce, a ferocious debate which would engulf the mountain for the next 70 years. A number of the monks, some of the donors uh, of the Skeet of St. Anne, but further than that, throughout the Holy Mountain, began to protest. Sunday should not be the day when we commemorate the dead. Saturday has been given to us by tradition as the day of commemoration. Do not change the traditions. We need to go back to the traditional canonical practice of the church. Those though, monks who had made the change though, would argued in return, well, isn't every liturgy a celebration of the resurrection? Isn't every liturgy, don't, in every, don't we uh, exalt um, and, and rejoice in Christ's, in the victory over death at every liturgy? Does it really matter then whether we do it on the Saturday or on the Sunday? They began to call those monks who resisted the change, Sabatiani, you know, the Sabbath keepers, or the Kolivades, you know, those that are interested in the Koliva and uh, have taken on what apparently this trivial, superficial issue and made it into something dogmatic. Saint Nicodemus, whom we'll speak about in a, a few minutes, uh, would protest at the use of this term colivades. Uh, so we are not colivades, he would say, uh, and it's, it's unfair and it's unreasonable to call us that. Uh, but very often in history, uh, names, appellations, which are given uh, in a, with a negative sense, or in a pejorative sense, often stick uh, and quite often become uh, badges of honor over time. You know, hence, in the early church, uh, Christians were first called Christians as, a, as an insult. You know, these are the little Christs walking around. Uh, but it was taken on, uh, owned by the Christians at the time, the believers, uh, and has become uh, the, uh, the name we know ourselves to this day. The same with the Colivadas, uh, the Colivadas fathers and those that argued for the Saturday memorials, uh, a pejorative term which has stuck uh, and which is still used today. Though some uh, scholars, uh, Father George Metalinos, uh, has argued that we should really be calling them the neo-hesychasts, not the Colivadas. In any case, it wasn't just about boiled wheat and koliva. That was the obvious issue, but there were many broader 
and underlying spiritual issues at play here. And the Golivadas, because that's what we call them from now on, understood that what was at stake here was nothing less than the orthodox understanding of the road to salvation. It's incumbent on us quite often to really think about sometimes issues and controversies within the life of the church uh, that seem to revolve around obvious, practical, incidental things. And quite often we dismiss them uh, on those terms. Uh, and throughout history, that's been the, the case, the hesychasts, the uh, old believers in Russia, the possessors, non-possessors in Russia, uh, the Kolivadas, uh, the old calendars, whatever issue it may be, quite often we can reduce it to something absurd, like a bowl of Koliva, or we can investigate to see what exactly is at stake here. And as we'll see, it's not always clear. But before we talk about the controversy itself, I want to introduce you, and for some of you, there will be no introduction at all, uh, to the three main protagonists, the three heroes of this whole controversy. Uh, there's a little bit of a, a bio on each of them before we look at their great work together as Kolibada's fathers. The first is Saint Macarios, Archbishop of Corinth. You can see his dates there, 1731 to 1805. He was born as Michael Notaras in Corinth, uh, and as a very young man, very pious man, was quite well educated, he served as a teacher in the school in Corinth, uh, being on a voluntary basis, being paid nothing. And so holy was he, and so uh, engaged with the people of Corinth, that when the Archbishop of Corinth died uh, in 1764, the, um, the people of Corinth requested from the ecumenical patriarch that Michael Notaras, who was in his early 30s at that time, be made the new Metropolitan or Archbishop of Corinth. They sent a delegation to, the, to Constantinople. Uh, the Patriarch agreed. Michael goes to Constantinople. He's quickly ordained through the ranks and returns to Corinth in 1765 as the Archbishop. And he begins a process of reform within the Church of Corinth. A reformed reforms that are based on orthodox the orthodox tradition, on a and a more close adherence to the canons of the church. He wanted to raise the level of his flock, the level of his people, the spiritual level, the educational level, and in order to do that, he began to demand of his own clergy stricter adherence to the traditions. He um, retired a number of priests. The uneducated, he sent to monasteries to be educated before they could come back uh, and uh, take up their posts. He established schools. Uh, unfortunately, though, his tenure was very short. 
In 1768, a war broke out between Russia and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, he felt very vulnerable in his position, uh, and he left Corinth for a time until the end of the war uh, and began uh, an itinerant ministry on the islands of the Aegean. When the war finished, uh, he attempted to go back to Corinth, but he found that his, the position was filled by a new candidate, uh, and we won't go into the politics of all that. Uh, so he goes to Constantinople and asks from the patriarch uh, whether uh, he would be allowed to function as a bishop, but to have a, an itinerant ministry to go around preaching and teaching uh, throughout Greece. And he was given that blessing by the patriarch. In 1777, uh, he ends up on Mount Athos, and it is there that he joins with Saint Athanasios of Paros, from the island of Paros, Parios, and Saint Nicodemus to lead the Kolivadas movement. Uh, and he was really the inspiration for the others uh, to get them to collect the works of the fathers, to edit them, to amend them, to uh, annotate them, and then to publish them. Uh, and especially uh, Saint Nicodemus, who will be in a sense, his star acolyte. He would repose on the 16th of April, 1805, on the island of Chios, after a lifetime of seeking to educate, to inspire uh, through his writings and his teachings. His partner in this was Saint Athanasius of the island of Paros. Born in Paros, he attended what was known as the Evangelikis Holi, or the Evangelical School of Smyrna. This was one of the academies established under Turkish, uh, under the uh, Turkish occupation uh, in, uh, in significant centers of the Greek world, which encouraged the uh, teaching of uh, theology, the scriptures, but also secular subjects, uh, such as physics and philosophy uh, and rhetoric, and uh, quite often the ideas of the Enlightenment and the knowledge of the West was uh, communicated through these academies and schools. He was an exceptional student, studied there for six years in his early 20s, and then he went to Mount Athos to the uh, Athonias Academy of Mount Athos, which had been recently re-established uh, re or established uh, by uh, and was then under the direction of Evgenios Vulgaritz, another uh, erudite Orthodox clergyman who had studied in the West uh, and who had made the Athoniada Academy, uh, brought it to the cutting edge of uh, the Western as well as the Orthodox Academy. Uh, he brought the sciences uh, he brought mathematics uh, onto Mount Athos. He had a, Evgenios Vulgaris had an, an exceptionally uh, controversial career there, and eventually he had to leave because he had become so controversial. But it was in this environment that Athanasios Parios was educated. He studied philosophy and physics and rhetoric, uh, continuing in Kerkira, in Corfu, under another Orthodox clergyman, Nikiforos Theotokis, who had also studied uh, in Italy. Uh, so he was 
uh, at the top of the academic world as much as he could be then in Greece uh, and in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, Makarios, Athanasios, we'll see Saint Nicodemus as well, were highly educated people, not just educated in, the, um, in theology, but also in the secular sciences. They understood them, uh, and it was because of that that they were able to react reasonably and rationally as well to the excesses of the Enlightenment. He would become Dean of the Athonias Academy in 1771, and on one of his stays on Mount Athos, St. Makarios of Corinth would ordain him a priest, and he would join Makarios uh, and St. Nicodemus. Accused by his uh, adversaries of being anti-Western because uh, he sought to reject uh, the uh, influences of the Enlightenment insofar as they promoted atheism uh, and veered people away from God. They considered him contentious and even anti-scientific, though the, the record does not bear this out. He respected the sciences, he respected philosophy, and he respected the West uh, as long uh, as the primacy of orthodoxy uh, and the primacy of the church fathers was preserved. During the Kolibadis movement, and we'll see this a little bit later as well in more detail, uh, the uh, ecumenical patriarchate uh, would get involved uh, because of the uh, seriousness of the controversy. Uh, and he, along with St. Nicodemus, would actually be excommunicated by the patriarchate in 1776 on charges of heresy. Uh, they would both be restored by a new patriarch uh, in 1776. 81. But so contentious had the situation become on Mount Athos that he had to move, leave the mountain, uh, and move to Chios, where he would direct the um, academy in Chios until 1812, teaching rhetoric, theology, and logic. Eventually permitted to retire to a monastery, we're talking, he's about the age of 90 at this point in time, uh, where he had always wanted to, uh, to be uh, uh, by himself in Isihia, practicing the, uh, the Jesus prayer. Uh, he's allowed one year of that. And even during that time, he writes apologetical works defending orthodoxy against Western influences and promoting the veneration of the new martyrs who had been, uh, 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 who had suffered and died under the Turkish yoke. He fell, falls asleep on the 24th of June, 1813, and was glorified as a saint by the Ecumenical Patriarchate at the request of the Church of Greece in 1995. Our third saint this evening is Saint Nicodemus the Hagiorite, or Aioritis, Saint Nicodemus of Mount Athos, of the Holy Mountain. Uh, like the others, a little bit younger than the other two, he was born on the island of Naxos uh, in the Iglades uh, as Nicholas. He too, to, born to a well-to-do family, he studied uh, his primary education on Naxos, but eventually also went to the evangelical school, the Evangelikiskoli in Smyrni, uh, in Asia Minor, where he studied the whole curriculum 
and he was particularly adept at languages, learning Latin, Italian, and French, which would come in very useful for him later on, as he would translate uh, even Western texts uh, into Greek uh, for the benefit of his people. It was while he was at Naxos uh, that he made a short trip to Idra, where Saint Macarius of Corinth was staying for a while, and it is there that he met the older bishop. There was about 20, there was a 20 year difference in their ages. Macarius introduces him to the some other Colivadas fathers, and he takes one of them on as his spiritual father, and he begins the, uh, the journey uh, towards hesychastic practice uh, and the monastic life. Eventually, he's directed to go at the age of 26 to Mount Athos to the monastery of Dionysiu, where he is tonsured a monk, taking the name of Nicodemus. When St. Macarius visits Athos in 1777, they begin a grand project together. Macarius, St. Macarius is in his late 40s, uh, St. Nicodemus in his late 20s at this stage. And Macarius begins to collect from the libraries of Athos old texts, patristic texts, uh, and hands them over to Nicodemus and instructs him to begin the editing process, uh, the annotating process, and the publication process of some of the most classical works that we have today on our, in our libraries, as we'll see later, the Philokalia, the Everietinos, uh, and so many other books, the Rudder comes from this time. An extraordinary partnership uh, that would last until each of their repose. These fathers, though, were not just academics. They lived the life that they were reading about and the life that they taught. And Saint Nicodemus, in particular, lived an extraordinarily strict ascetical existence. Uh, Professor George Babis describes it in this way. He says, Saint Nicodemus's life was impressive in its simplicity, but the hard and poor way of his living, the complete renunciation of all the pleasures of the flesh. His food consisted of rice boiled in water, honey diluted with water, olives soaked in fava beans and bread. He rarely ate fish. He practiced xerophagia, that is the ascetic mode of eating bread, raisins and nuts in the true sense of the word. The neighboring monks used to bring him food and invite him to their spare table, where beginning to talk, he would forget completely about the food prepared for him. His fame spread and many Orthodox and non-Orthodox visited him to receive advice and guidance. We can read his works and quite often you read his Xomologitarion uh, uh, for confessors, uh, the Rudder, uh, the uh, Handbook of Spiritual Counsel and so many others as we'll see and they come across as being extraordinarily strict but he wasn't a life that he wasn't living himself. And as a person, he was very kind, very lenient, and very loving who came to him. He, so strict was his uh, ascetical life that his health broke down. Uh, and at the age of 60, he fell asleep in the Lord on the 14th of July. 
1809. The Bolivar's fathers, those three, and there were many others with them as well, remained in the hesychastic tradition that had operated and worked on Mount Athos for so many generations. They were exponents of the niptic tradition of spiritual vigilance, which is brought about through repentance, through prayer, especially the Jesus prayer, through fasting, uh, and through, as we'll see, the reception of Holy Communion. They were concerned about the impact that the Western Enlightenment was having on the Greek people. And they felt that a real regeneration of Greece could only be achieved through a return to orthodox spirituality, the theology of the church fathers and a renewed liturgical life. And so they advocated frequent communion every day, if possible. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But this, possibly more than likely, more than the Koliva, began uh, a real war against them on Mount Athos. Suffice to say that by this time, uh, both laity and even monastics would commune infrequently. Uh, and this call to daily communion uh, for the monastics, possibly uh, weekly communion for the, uh, for the laity, was a scandal. And unfortunately, it's still sometimes a scandal today, 200 years later. Fierce hostility was provoked, false accusations, burning of their books. We even have an incident of monks uh, hiring a... Um, uh, pirates to, uh, to kill um, some uh, members of the Kolivadis movement. St. Nicodemus and the others were accused of, uh, were slandered really by really low accusations. You know, St. Nicodemus, they would say, was, uh, you know, wanted to commune so often that he had an artoforio stuck in his kalimafi and he would walk around with it. Uh, and then whenever he felt like communing, he would take off his kalimafi and, you know, and just uh, take some communion. Uh, Nicodemus felt that he had to respond to this, obviously must have gotten around by saying, well, no, no, I can go to any church I want and commune at any time I want. There's no necessity for me to do that. But such was uh, the level of the debate uh, at some stages. So vitriolic had it become on Mount Athos. Uh, and quite often the Kolivadas were expelled, as we've, you may have noticed, and had to leave Mount Athos uh, for fear of their lives very often. But what this did do was that as the Kolivadas left, they would make their way mainly to the Greek islands, mainland Greece and Asia Minor, but mainly to the Aegean islands. And the Kolivadas movement, their spirit, their pnevma, their teaching, uh, their encouragement of frequent communion would become widespread throughout Greece. 
the Patriarchate felt compelled to deal with the issue, and a number of synods were held in the 1770s and 1780s on this issue. In 1772, Patriarch Theodosius II issued a letter stating that, well, Saturday is the traditional day for memorials, according to the, uh, the canons of the church, but there is no sin if you do a memorial service on Sunday. Uh, and on the issue of communion, uh, he said that well, it, throughout history, it has been received in different ways at different times. So in a sense, let's all bear with one another. A very pastorally sensitive letter, which seemed to be rejected by both sides as inadequate. There was to be no compromise. In 1773, Patriarch Samuel uh, issued a synodical encyclical, a letter by his synod, calling on all monks of Mount Athos to desist in the con from the controversy and to follow the instructions of their monastery over this issue. Again, it did not seem to work. By 1770, in 1774, uh, a, a very significant synod was held at the Kotlubu Siu Monastery on Mount Athos. Two former patriarchs attended, a number of metropolitans um, uh, and other bishops, 200 monks were there. Uh, and the synod threatened excommunication to everyone who did not accept the synodal encyclical of the previous year. Again, this did not satisfy. Uh, in 1776, a synod in Constantinople under Patriarch Sophronios II specifically allowed memorials and Goliba to be held on either Saturday or Sunday and demanded an end to the discussion. No more talking about it. And this synod also excommunicates Saints Athanasios Parios, Saint Nicodemus, and some of the other Goliba's fathers. You can understand how strongly they felt about these issues. And for men of their spiritual stature and caliber, uh, they understood that there were great issues at stake, that they were fighting for orthodoxy. As Saint Nicodemus would say, we have been condemned because we were fighting for the orthodox faith. In 1781, though, a succeeding patriarch, Gabriel IV, um, holds a new inquiry into the matter, uh, finds that the charges against the Koli Fathers are unfounded, uh, and restores them to communion uh, and to their uh, priestly roles. And again, he says that memorials can be held on either day. The controversy didn't really disappear uh, because we see that in 1819, on the eve of the Greek Revolution, Patriarch St. Gregory V, who would, be, uh, who would be hanged by the Turks immediately after the revolution, uh, had to write to the monks on Mount Athos. Again, on the issue of Oliver and on the issue of Holy Communion. Uh, on the issue of Oliver, he says, Either day is okay, and for Holy Communion, that it should be received 
not at certain times, that is major feast days necessarily, but when one felt ready after confession and spiritual preparation. Must remember that Patriarch St. Gregory V lived on Mount Athos for much of the time that this controversy was going on. He was always in exile and always on Mount Athos in between his three periods as Patriarch. So he knew the Kolivadas fathers uh, and he knew the issues very well. The Greek Revolution, though, would bring an end to the whole dispute. In a sense, um, it superseded uh, these debates. Nevertheless, the issues that were raised were going to continue in the life of the modern Greek church and still have some resonance today. The Kolivadas fathers engaged, as I mentioned before, in an extraordinary teaching, writing, and publishing program. We don't have the time to go through all of these works, and there are many others as well. Uh, but in 1782 and uh, 83, they managed to publish the three greatest works, the Philokalia, which you know, we have an English translation now, five-volume English translation, a collection of the mystical writings of the Hesychast Fathers, uh, which show us you know, how to come to know God, the, the, the possibility of union, the union of man with God uh, is real, and these writings uh, offer us the, uh, the basis for that. The Evergetinos, another collection of the writings of the Desert Fathers and um, uh, on the spiritual life. You know, again, now we have it published in a, a full uh, four-volume uh, four-volume uh, edition, recently published in English in a, about 15 years ago. Uh, the book that we'll be concerned with a little bit in more detail tonight is Concerning Frequent Communion, which came out at that time as well, 1783. We'll talk about that in a moment. Other books, the Handbook of Counsel on Spiritual Practice, uh, they brought together the works of St. Simeon, the, the, the New Theologian, uh, which shows us that their connection was not just to traditions and practices, but to the spiritual life, uh, to the acquisition of the Holy Spirit, of which St. Simeon, the new theologian, was a great exponent. The Exomologitarion, or the Manual of Confession, uh, instructing priests um, how to prepare themselves and how to hear confessions and how to give um, penances or uh, epithemia uh, to the person confessing. Two books that have been somewhat controversial, The Unseen Warfare, Aoratos Polemos, and Spiritual Exercises, Gymnasmata Pneumatica, were works that had been written in the West by Roman Catholic authors, uh, were taken by the uh, St. Nicodemus especially, but by the Colivadas, they were reworked, they were edited, redacted, additions made, deletions made, uh, and reconstructed in order to present an orthodox ethos and an orthodox spirituality, which shows us that the Colivadas were not anti-Western per se. And they are, and St. Nicodemus argued that whatever good there is in the West, we need to access it. 
whatever bad there is in the West, we need to reject it. And this is from a man who didn't believe that the Roman Catholics had valid baptism at all. The works of the, on the new martyrs, so the uh, Martyrologion of the uh, martyrs who died under Ottoman occupation was also published for the first time. And the Rudder, the Pidalion in 1800, uh, which is a collection of the canons of the Orthodox Church brought together in one volume with commentary uh, and footnotes for the first time. Uh, it was an extraordinarily uh, step uh, of pastoral concern. Uh, and you know, these, these publications, you know, just one glance at them, we see these are still the classics uh, to this day. Uh, the Philokalia, in fact, uh, by 1783 was already been translated into Slavonic and published in Russia uh, and ignited a hesychastic movement uh, in Russia at the time. So the Bolivadas weren't just about Bolivar. They actually represented the continuation of the hesychastic movement of the 14th century. The spirit of St. Gregory Palamas, the understanding that it is possible for man to become God, to purify himself, catharsis, to cleanse the soul, to achieve fortismos, illumination of the mind, and ultimately theoria or enosis or union with God. But to do this, you had to walk through the difficult path of repentance, fasting, the Jesus prayer, the physical aspects of prostrations. But at the pinnacle of all this was the reception of Holy Communion, the frequent reception of Holy Communion. Saint Nicodemus, in fact, sought to publish the collected works of Saint Gregory Palamas, but unfortunately, after he had done all the work and sent the uh, manuscript to the printers in Venice, uh, the Austrian government, which uh, was in charge of Venice at the time, ransacked the, uh, the printing press because they were publishing certain revolutionary tracts as well, uh, and his works were destroyed, uh, uh, something he never quite got over. To be saved, Saint Nicodemus says, Sothina, and to be deified, that is to become God with a small g, to be divinized, Theothina is the same thing. This is a pristine understand, orthodox understanding of salvation, which can take away any notion of Western dominance in St. Nicodemus's mind, of which he has sometimes been accused. We'll finish with Holy Communion, since that was the, uh, in the title of our talk. There is Sinehus concerning frequent Holy Communion. And again, this text has been recently published uh, in a series edited by Father Andrew Louth um, uh, as, uh, under the title of Manna from Athos by Haramang Patapios and Archbishop Chrysostomos. Uh, the, the whole text has been translated into English with some commentary at the beginning. Holy Communion was in the early church acted as the criterion of membership of the church. 
How did you know that you were a Christian? Because you did what Christ commanded as often as you come together, do this in remembrance of me. Commune. That was the command. It was a communal act, first and foremost, something the church did together. It defined the church. But from the fourth century onwards, with a great influx of converts following uh, the, the church becoming established uh, as legal and later as the official religion of the Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire, uh, we begin to notice a drop-off in participation in the Eucharist. People quite often became Christians for nominal, uh, nominal Christians for their own purposes. And so either did not feel the need to commune regularly or were prevented from communing regularly uh, because of certain impediments. St. Basil the Great and St. John Chrysostom in the fourth century bemoan this fact. St. Basil says that we should be communing three to four times a week. St. John Chrysostom says daily communion is preferable where possible. But the, the Christians began to go backwards in that respect. Because everyone was being baptized and now being baptized as infants, the checks and controls, which used to be during catechism and baptism, who do you let into the church? Are they worthy? Uh, are they of a right frame of mind? Do they believe? Now were transferred to the communion cup. And so uh, a more lax approach developed. And sometimes people, for whatever reason, felt that they were unworthy to approach. There were attempts in the uh, ninth century by St. Theodore the Studite and the Hesychasts themselves, St. Gregory Palamas uh, in the 14th century. It wasn't just a Jesus prayer. They were telling people to commune and commune regularly because it is only in communion that we are ultimately united with God. But by the time of the Turkokratia, most uh, manuals was telling people, telling monks to commune 10 times a year and lay people to commune twice a year. And that became the norm. The Golibadas fathers who brought up the excuses that, that people had, bad habits, People um, got into the habit of not communing, but also in their lax spiritual life, uh, developed other habits they felt prevented them from communing. Negligence and even feigned piety. I'm not worthy to commune. Uh, to which uh, Saint Nicodemus would respond, if you are not worthy to commune every day or every week, then you are not worthy to commune once a year. Nevertheless, Holy Communion was not something that you could just, for the Kolivadas fathers, that is, just walk up to whenever you felt like it. Yes, frequent communion, but frequent communion with preparation. Contrition, confession, fulfillment of your epitimio, your rule, your spiritual rule that has been given to you by your spiritual father which may include fasting, prostrations, almsgiving, prayers, scripture readings. 
even speaks about consoling those who are in pain or in distress. All of these acts needed to be done in order to prepare the soul for communion. But the resolution was not to avoid communion. It was actually to raise the level of our spiritual life. And so in this uh, work concerning frequent communion, uh, Saint Nicodemus uh, goes through, uh, it's divided into three parts. The first part is actually uh, a reflection on the Lord's Prayer, the Patrimon. Uh, and when he gets to the point of, and give us this day our daily bread, uh, it is there that he speaks about the meaning of the word, the daily bread, says has three meanings. It means the bread that we eat to live, that we should not be concerned about tomorrow, but trust in God for our sustenance. It is also the word of God, the scriptures. Man cannot live by bread alone, said Jesus. And so we must feed our soul with the scriptures on a daily basis. But it is also, he says, at the highest level, it is the bread of life, the body and blood of our Lord. And he says, how can you feed your body every day and starve your spirit by communing only two or three times a year? Spiritual birth is given at baptism, he asserts. But if we neglect communion, then we are going to lose our, the grace given to us and we will die spiritually. So as we feed our bodies, we need to feed our soul with the bread of life. The second part of the text, uh, uh, in a sense, gives a reflection on what communion is and why we should receive it. And the third part is uh, objections to communion. And it lists 13 objections uh, from uh, uh, things like I'm not worthy, uh, to uh, St. Mary of Egypt only communed once in her life, which are, uh, comes up every so often still, uh, to uh, things like, you know, what happens if my priest tells me uh, it doesn't want people to commune very frequently? Now, what do I do then? I'm not going to give you the answers. You can find the book and read it. Uh, but they are very interesting answers, very pastorally sensitive. Uh, and he... Uh, uh, but in the end, he calls on people to approach the chalice as the only way of salvation. So a couple of concluding thoughts, and we finish up here. The Colivadas fathers sought for a renewal of the Christian life in the Orthodox Church, in the Greek Church at the time. They wanted to raise the spiritual educational level of both the clergy and the laity. They wanted to show them that in drawing on the scriptural and on the Greek patristic tradition, they would find all that they needed in order to find true knowledge, true understanding of God and of who they were that they did not lead to look to 
the Western Enlightenment, at least uh, in its atheistic and rationalistic uh, expressions for something like that. But true renewal of the Greek nation could only come by drawing on the spiritual roots of the church fathers. They sought for a renewal in orthodox liturgical life expressed through frequent Holy Communion, expressed through a proper understanding uh, of the tradition of the church and a strict adherence to that tradition. Not for the purposes of binding us to rules and regulations, but in order that the possibility of each person's deification, salvation, might be realized. And so they understood that there was an inseparable connection, a nexus between what we believe, orthodoxy, and what we do, orthopraxy, between belief and practice, between symbol and spiritual reality. They would assert it does matter when you do the holy work because it expresses a spiritual reality that needs to be continually communicated and reinforced. And even Saint Nicodemus, um, who, you know, obviously he claimed that he would never do a memorial service on Saturday, understood that katikonomian it was possible you know, for the salvation of the human being, that we weren't, uh, that there is a krivia, there is strict adherence to the tradition, to the canons, but there is also an economia, which allows for relaxation of that uh, adherence for particular purposes under spiritual guidance for the salvation of the person. His fear, though, was that the economia would become the acrivia, and in which case then you thwart and you change uh, the understanding and the symbolism. Perhaps today we could reflect on something like burial versus cremation, you know, which is a more recent and a more uh, uh, issue for us. You know, the church uh, argues against cremation, would a cremated person go to hell? Well, we, we hope not, all right? Uh, and yet we don't encourage cremation, why? Because by burying someone, we express our, our belief that the body that has been buried is sanctified by God through baptism and the mysteries, and that it will be raised on the last day. To abandon that would be to abandon a spiritual, uh, the confession of a spiritual reality in our everyday life. That's the way the Kolibadas fathers felt about the Saturday memorials. They were often misunderstood then, and even now, by certain theologians and historians as fundamentalists, obsessed with superficial customs and even as heretics. But ultimately, their life was a call to all to faithfully follow the well-trodden path of the fathers, 
to the kingdom of God. And so they managed the most difficult scenarios to take the works of the fathers, to live them, to, to collect them, to publish them, and to hand them down. It was an extraordinary task uh, whose fruits we are still reaping today. Uh, we have their intercessions. Well, thank you. Um, and I'll hand over to questions uh, or comments, perhaps. Well, thank you, Father, for a very riveting, informative, relevant uh, talk. And uh, thank you for reminding us that the church is never free from controversy. Um, and that we're so blessed that through the ages we've, the church has offered up great fathers um, who've appeared to steer the church back to its orthodox spiritual um, phronima and sacramental life. And given that um, your focus was based around monasteries and, and uh, fathers within uh, on um, Athos, I was wondering whether the Yerodas might like to start off with some comments before we open to the floor for questions. Okay. Uh, now, thank you very much, Pater Anastasia, for giving this talk. Um, the, if the fathers, the Kolivadan, were with us today, of course, that, they'd be absolutely delighted that the um, extent of uh, the publications that we have today of their spiritual works and spiritual works in general, because uh, as you know, they were very keen on publishing works and went to great lengths uh, to do that. So we have not many excuses for not uh, studying the works today because we all have those classical books of the Virgetenon, the Philokalia and all of uh, St. Nicodemus books in our personal libraries or easily accessible. Um, definitely that they, they made an exceptional input, uh, in, insisting, as you correctly mentioned, uh, on the spiritual life at a personal level in the personal relationship with God and uh, highlighting the sacramental aspect. Uh, one that I think we could also perhaps highlight is that is the, in that spiritual life, in the participation of the sacrament life, sacramental life and so forth, the importance of the role of the spiritual father who will help us um, and guide us as to the uh, participation in our sacramental life, in our personal ascetical life, in our regulate our and encourage our reading and daily scripture reading, all the things that you mentioned, uh, because uh, sometimes by ourselves, we're not able to come, to gauge or discern what is uh, a fitting program for ourselves. But our spiritual father sees our uh, inner life, our spiritual life through confession. He sees our, our life in its entirety. And hopefully in the spirits, of the Kulibadan will it will guide us in that sacramental life and in that spiritual struggle. 
I think that's key. It probably goes without, of course, it's mentioned in by Saint Nicodemus, was the role of the spiritual father regularly, but probably maybe doesn't get highlighted much because they were all from monastic backgrounds and they would take for granted having a, a spiritual father in their lives and the, and the importance of obedience in the spiritual. Thank you very much for this evening's uh, talk. I feel very edified and and um, we have uh, a lot of work to do, all of us on a personal level, and you reminded us of that this evening, and we thank you for that. Thank you, Pater Tinefisas. And you're, you're right, and St. Nicodemus makes this point over and over again, that frequent Holy Communion, yes, under the guidance of your spiritual father. You know, so it's not something that you decide for yourself. Uh, or by yourself at least, um, but it is uh, something that is uh, uh, that is done in obedience, uh, very much so.